0: having a lot of new faces visit us on Sunday morning as a local church, and we give praise to God for that. We give praise to God for every new face that's here. Uh, If you have just started coming in recent weeks, we want to welcome you in Jesus's name. We welcome you this morning in the name of Jesus. One of the things that Ryan didn't mention is his in his announcements um, is that we have been away from our normal routine for several months as a local church. We usually meet in here weekly. Uh, at the very beginning of coronavirus, we were on the internet, and then when we started back meeting, we were next door. And so, um, what Ron didn't mention is that we have organized this dance floor uh, this morning, and somebody says this is the Grace Community Church homecoming. Uh, right right after our meeting this morning. Um, Totally kidding about that. One of the things that we want to make sure uh, periodically that we mention to visitors is, you know, somebody might have a question, why do y'all do that stuff? You know, like I come one week and there's green stuff hanging from the ceiling. And come another week, there's a chandelier. And we rent this space, and and we take what they give us uh, each week. And this week, it's a dance floor. Um, And so this is the way the Lord keeps it interesting for us as a local church. Uh, So we are glad that you are here this morning. Uh, Members of Grace Community Church, please make sure you spend some time talking to these new faces. Uh, Get their name. uh, Try to understand a little about their story and talk about Jesus. As the Lord brings people into this gathering each Sunday, talk about the Lord. No better place to do this than when we're gathered together in Jesus' name. All right, we come now this morning in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. And we're going to pray together and we're going to ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, we gather together today in Jesus' name. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for that time of praise that you just gave us, Lord. You gave us an opportunity. To fulfill the end for which we were created. The glorifying of Your holy name. And it's true, Lord. You're the fairest of all. It's true, Lord, that there's none like You that can compare to You. And You're not just right. You're beautiful, Lord. And Your glory is above the heavens. And You are our life, Lord. And our great desire is that You would be exalted this day and every day, in every way. That You would have the highest place. That You would sit in the Supreme Seat in every life. And so we gather in Your name today, Lord, and we ask for Your help. We confess our weakness. Lord, we even say it this way, that we have no idea how much we need Your help, Lord. We know we need it. We don't know how much, God. Lord, we ask that You would overcome hardness this morning. Lord, we ask that You would even overcome spiritual blindness this morning. Lord, we pray that You would overcome our sin this morning. And our indifference to You, Lord. God, we pray as we gather around Your Word today, that You would illumine our minds. That you would take us past mere knowledge that puffs up. And that you would illumine our minds by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would encourage our hearts. That you would move our hearts. To not just be hearers of the word today. But also doers. Lord Jesus, we are your disciples and we call you Lord. And we desire to respond to your word. Please help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the things that we learn from the early chapters of the Bible, one of the things the Word of God does from the very beginning, is it begins to make distinctions and separate things. And some people have really wrong ideas about the church. That the church is a place where everybody's the same, no distinctions are made, not so. From the very beginning of creation, God has been about making distinctions and separating things. And He does this by His Word. And in fact, you could say it this way, that the very first thing... That God does in Genesis chapter 1 is he separates light from darkness and he does it with his word. He says let there be light and there was light and the Lord God separates the light from the darkness. You see this happen many many ways as we work through the days of creation. He separates the waters from the waters. The waters are separated from the dry land. The Word of God making distinctions. The Word of God dividing. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3.15 is a precious verse at Grace Community Church. The seed of the woman that's promised, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is referred to by many as the proto-evangel, the first announcement of the Gospel in Holy Scripture. And I want to remind us in that verse of one of the things that happens is God divides with His Word. Listen to it. God says, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. The Word of God promises as early as Genesis 3, That there's going to be two lineages that descend. One from the woman and one from the serpent. And these two are going to be opposed to one another. They're not going to be the same. The offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent. And from that moment on, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Humanity is bust in half. It is divided into two separate groups. The seed of the woman... And the seed of the serpent. You see this many ways in Scripture. The righteous and the wicked. God's people and the world. These two groups that make up all of humanity. And the Bible says that that the distinction between these two groups is evident. In in other words, it's clear. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 10. He says, by this it is evident... Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? It's evident who belongs in these two groups. John goes on to say this, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And so we have the Bible teaches us that from the very beginning, we have these two groups that make up humanity, the righteous and the wicked, the church And the world, the people that belong to God, and the people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what we're continuing in this morning, Jesus has already painted this sharp contrast for us between these two groups, between both of these groups. And he did it with the Beatitudes. We saw that last week. The Beatitudes, these kingdom characteristics, the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God is sharply contrasting the disciples of Jesus apart from the world in which they live. And so Jesus is making this distinction, he's carrying this distinction forward. There are those in the world who are characterized by the Beatitudes. And there are those in the world who are not. So think about all the ways you could say this. There are those in this world who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And by implication, there are those in this world who are not. There are the poor in spirit and the proud. There are those who are merciful, God's people. And there are those who are merciless. They could care less. The two groups, there are the pure in heart, those belong to God, and there are the defiled on the inside, those belong to the world. There are those who do righteousness on the one hand, and there are others who persecute them for it on the other hand. You have these two groups, and they're as old as the garden of Eden. And one of the things that the Beatitudes shows us is that the disciples of Jesus, they are kingdom citizens. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. In fact, that's the first uh, thing that's held out. He says, verse 3, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. They belong to the kingdom. And yet, at the same time, they live In the midst of the world. And so Jesus is addressing. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As they are living. In the midst. Of the kingdom. Of the world. And with that last beatitude. Ringing in our ears. Blessed are those. Who are persecuted. I want us to think this morning. About a looming question that can lodge into the mind of a disciple of Jesus. As he announces, you live in this world, blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness. He's telling us that we're going to be hated, that we're going to be rejected, that we're going to be maligned and even persecuted. And so one of the questions we must work through as followers of Jesus is how do they, how do we relate to this world that hates us? How do citizens of the kingdom of heaven live and relate to citizens of the kingdom of the world? How do we live towards those who hate us? To the point of even persecution, how do we live towards those who are so different from us that the only contrast that can grab the difference is light and darkness? How do we live towards these people? How do we live towards this world? How do citizens of the kingdom of God live towards the kingdom of this world? In a broad and general sense, Jesus answers that question for us in this passage this morning. He's instructing us as his disciples of how we live towards this world that we live and move in. Every day. And so let's get our eyes on these words from Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says this You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word to this local church this morning. Now I want to start here with the very first word in verse 13. And I would submit to you that if our Bibles were translated in the south, verse 13 would begin with the word y'all. Because the you in verse 13 is actually a plural in the original language of the New Testament. Jesus is making a statement here not merely about you individually, but about us corpor- corporately. In fact, that's the way that verse 13 begins. It's also the way that verse 14 begins. This is a corporate description, a collective description of the church Jesus Jesus is saying something about y'all y'all and these are objective truths for his people he says y'all are the salt of the earth y'all are the light of the world I want you to catch that the objective nature of that salt of the earth light of the world This is not something that you just should be as a follower of Jesus. This text tells us that this is who you are as a follower of Jesus. It's an indicative. It's a pronouncement from the mouth of our Lord. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. This is who Christians are. And what we do flows from these pronouncements. Of Jesus Christ. So we have these two metaphors. Verse 13 and verse 14. And they both describe a Christian's relationship to the world. And so I I want us to seek for a moment to understand these metaphors. The role of light is a lot easier for us to grasp in our modern context. Uh, It's pretty simple. What does light do? Well, light illumines the darkness. That's what light does. In every sense, in every way that light, that light works, that's what it does. It illumines the darkness. And so, not too hard. There's some self-evidence here. Okay. When we come to this salt metaphor, this is a little harder for us to grasp in our modern context. Light illumines darkness... But what does salt do? And the main use of salt in the ancient world, and and really not not just the ancient world, but really prior to modern refrigeration, the main use of salt in the world was to preserve meat. That's how it was used. Um, Some of you know this. Some of you don't have any idea how things worked before that microwave button. But this is how it worked. Okay? Okay. In the ancient world and all the way up to recent history, if you ate meat, you ate it one of two ways. You ate it fresh or you ate salted meat. And so there was a process that, that was done to food. Um, food was salted, salt was rubbed into food, and it preserved the meat. And salted meat could be stored for many weeks, for, 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 for a long time, without it corrupting, without it rotting. And this is, this is the metaphor that, that Jesus is using here. That light illumines darkness, but salt preserves from corruption. And so Jesus is taking these common metaphors in, in, in the life of the ancient Near East and he is, he's making a truth claim About his church. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. And so I want us to understand. um, The nature of these metaphors. And so think about it. Think about what we can learn from these descriptions of the church of Jesus. First, the church is distinct from the world. You see that salt is not the earth. Light is not the world. There's a distinctness to it. The church is not the world. They're not the same group. And yet the salt is in the midst of the earth and the light is in the midst of the world. And so we have this description of the church of Jesus that they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're in this world, but they're distinct from the world. And that's who we are as followers of. Of Jesus. This is how Jesus prays for his church. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prays these words. He prays these words to his Father John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That's how Jesus prays for you. I don't want them out of the world. What is the request? But that you keep them from the evil one. In the world, but not like the world. That is, that, is, that is the intercession of Jesus Christ for his church. And so I want us to press into these two metaphors this morning the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I want to come at that from two angles. One, I want you to think about what that metaphor says implicitly about the world. And then I want us to turn the corner and consider what it says directly about the church. And so we'll start with the world first. What, is this, what, what are these pronouncements teach us about the world that we live in? Jesus calls the church the salt of the earth. And he calls the church the light of the world. And that tells us that the world is a place that needs salt And a place that needs light. That's that's the nature of the benefit that the church brings to the world. This world needs salt and light. And to say it another way, Jesus is affirming that the world that you live in is a decaying, rotting, corrupt, dark, sinful, depraved world. Jesus is teaching this. This is a sin-soaked world. This is a world of darkness and death. It's rotting. It's foul. It's offensive to God. It's sin-soaked. And it needs salvation. It needs light. It needs salt. And I want you to think about all the false remedies that we see all around us. Of uh, Here's, here, here, here's what will solve the, the problems of the world. Knowledge. Very often we're told knowledge and education is what's wrong with the world. If we could just learn, if we could just develop to this certain degree, then we'll be fine. Then we can overcome all the ills of this world. And I I want you to consider just one thing. Some of the greatest minds that have ever walked this earth In this worldly knowledge sense, okay? Philosophers were Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. When Jesus says this, they've been dead in the ground for hundreds of years. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates were not the answer to the world's corruption. Jesus, they've been in the tomb, they've announced their wisdom to the world. Jesus says, still darkness. Still, death, still need salt, still need light. The answer is not pagan wisdom to the world's problems. Take a step back to our modern world. In the last hundred years, we have seen unprecedented advance in technology, in science. We've made progress in thousands of ways, except for this one way spiritual decay, spiritual corruption. Spiritual darkness. So every advancement that this world has made, it cannot remedy this problem. Jesus tells us the darkness remains. The darkness remains. First John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is darkness and death and corruption. And this is the world that you live in. But Jesus tells us that in the midst of this world of corruption and darkness, there's light and there's salt. And this is what he announces directly about his church in the midst of that world that's offensive to God, that's dead in its sin. God is at work. The people of God are here. And they're the salt of the earth. And they're the light of the world. This is a beautiful thing to consider. Jesus is saying to you, Christian, all across the room, that we are salt in this rotting world. That's what he's saying to us. That we are light in this darkened world. He's declaring, this is who we are. This is who y'all are. Y'all are the the light. Y'all are the salt. And not only that, we're the only salt and light. We're the only salt and light in this world. Now I don't mean that as Grace Community Church is the only salt and light. But I mean that, that Christians... There's no other salt and light. This is it. This is the only hope that the world has is Christ and His people and His gospel. There's no plan B. Only salt, only light. And so these metaphors teach us that we have a preserving and an illumining effect upon the world as followers of Jesus Christ. The church is restraining the spread of evil the church is promoting the spread of good. And brothers and sisters, we are having this effect upon the world because Jesus says we are. You see that? This is the indicative. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Now we got to step back for a minute. And somebody says, wait a second. I've been paying attention To the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's take take a step back and let's answer an objection to this pronouncement of Jesus upon his church. In the very first words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that his disciples, his blessed disciples, are poor in spirit. That's who his people are. They're poor in spirit, they don't have any merit. They don't have any goodness. They don't have any power. They're the bankrupt before God. They're those who are empty handed before God. And trusting in Jesus Christ. And Him alone. And so the objection goes like this. How can a ragtag bunch of men and women who are spiritually bankrupt. Not just have a little goodness. Or a little merit. Or little power. They have none. They have no merit. No power. No goodness. How in the world. Could this ragtag group. Be called the salt. Of the earth. And the light. Of the world. In and of ourselves. We are nothing. We are worse than nothing. We don't just bring nothing to God. We bring. Train loads of human sin and guilt. We are worse than nothing in and of ourselves. There is nothing good in our flesh. We have no good apart from God. But this passage shows us that in Christ Jesus, we are the salt of the earth. In Christ Jesus, we are the light of the world. This is the promise of Jesus Christ in his gospel. He rescued us from the world. From that decaying and that dark world, Jesus delivered us. And he makes us children of light. Listen to how it's said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. God's word reminds us of what happened to us. And it says this, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so I want to remind you as a follower of Christ that you once belonged to a kingdom. You were thrown into the deepest pit of slavery, the kingdom of darkness. And by the grace of God alone, we were delivered from that kingdom. We were delivered from that slavery. And we were transferred. Isn't that a beautiful word? It's like Jesus picked us up out of this place and put us in this place. Transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, the gospel says. And placed into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. Of God. And I love that reminder. That reminder of how did we become part of this blessed people? And, it, and it's so crucial that we understand that when these distinctions are made between the church and the world, the light and the darkness, we're not this in and of ourselves. We're no better than anybody else in the world in and of ourselves. It's only in Christ, it's only by grace. That we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's by grace and grace alone. And so if you're here today and you don't know and follow Jesus Christ, and you don't know and follow Jesus, how can this help you? How can these realities help you? It shows us the truth about the world that you live in. The world that you're still a part of if you don't know and follow Jesus Christ. He calls it darkness. He calls it decay. Everything about it is death and it's going to end in judgment and condemnation from God. And yet there's hope. That in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, Jesus has come. Those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. We just heard that preached just a couple of weeks ago. That Jesus came as light into the midst of darkness. And this is His promise to us. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then He says this, Whoever follows Me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I want to hold that out to you this morning. That the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that has never lied, can never lie, He says that He can take your sin-darkened life and He can give you the light of life. That He's the light of the world. That He's our only hope. And one of the ways that we can look back and we can view several thousand years of church history is the perpetual story of Jesus, the light of the world, taking men and women, young and old, who live in darkness and giving them the light of life over and over and over. Every tribe, every nation, Every tongue, every generation, this is the work of Christ. The light of salvation breaking into the world of darkness. And so Jesus says the church is the light of the world because the church is in Christ. These things are true about us because we're in Christ. He's the light of the world, the hope of salvation in and of ourselves we're nothing in Christ Jesus we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world and our light in the midst of the earth is our distinctiveness from the world it's what sets us apart from the world and yet it doesn't come from us it comes from Christ we're different because of Christ not because of ourselves Listen to how it said in Ephesians chapter five verse eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you see the gospel in that description? Who you once were, who you now are in Jesus Christ, and then the command to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Walk as children of light. You are light. Live as light. And this is where this passage moves us. Toward obedience to Jesus Christ. But before we get to the commandment in verse 16. I want to point out. In the middle of these indicatives. The y'alls. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Jesus gives us a warning In verse 13 about losing our distinctiveness. Our set apartness. And he does this in verse 13 by teaching us about salt that has lost its taste. Listen to it. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under People's feet. Jesus is using an example of salt in his context that has become so mixed with other things that it can't even be called salt anymore. So you leave salt on the shelf for 10, 15, 20 years, nothing happens to it. It's still salt. That's what it is. I mean, if I'm remembering right, NACL is is, that's what it is. It's still that. But if you mix it with all these other things, all of a sudden, there's impurities introduced. And it can't be used for what it was meant to be used for. And so think about just the self-evidence of this. You're not going to use contaminated salt to preserve your meat. Somebody says, hey, that's salt right there, but there's a little bit of arsenic in it. But man, I'm sure it'll taste good when you eat that chicken. No way. If it's not salt, you're going to not you're not going to use it for salt. If it's corrupted, it loses the ability to do what it's meant to do. And so Jesus is warning us in this passage about salt losing its saltiness, its purity. And it's a warning to us about a Christian losing their distinctiveness from the world. Salt that loses its saltiness can no longer preserve meat. Jesus says the only thing that is good for is to be uh, thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He, He says it's useless. It can no longer accomplish its purpose. In the same way, a Christian that becomes indistinguishable from the world is like salt that loses its saltiness. This reminds us, how should we relate to this world? This reminds us of our first duty towards the world is to remain pure and distinct from the world. Here's how it says it in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows and their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. And the Bible says it like this. Whatever religion you think you have, if you are not keeping yourself distinct from the world, you have nothing. Pure and undefiled religion is this. That you would keep yourself unstained from this world. Distinct from this world. And so a Christian that is indistinguishable from the world. Not only have they lost their um, ability to be distinguished. Where you could say that's a disciple of Jesus. Not only have they lost their um distinctiveness, Jesus tells us they've also lost their effectiveness. You can't call them a disciple because there's no difference between them and the world. And they can't do any good to the world because they're just like the world. They lose their distinctiveness and also their effectiveness. Jesus says that unsalty salt is useless because it can no longer accomplish It's purpose. And this tells us something very important about the Christian life. That our influence on the world is directly related to the contrast. Directly related to the the difference between us and them. That's where our influence lies. And the reverse is true. You lose the the, the distinctness, the contrast, and there's no longer influence. Like Ryan told us a couple of weeks ago, you lose the light. You stop being light. You stop being salt. You lose it. There's no difference anymore. Our our distinction, our contrast from the world, it's why we're hated as followers of Jesus. Do you see that? It's why the world hates us. You don't persecute people that are just like you. You persecute people that are the exact opposite to you. That offend you. It's why the world hates us. But it's also why we're effective in this world. is because we're a contrast to the world of darkness. We're citizens of the kingdom of light. We're the people of God. The followers of Jesus. So those who become like the world can never win the world. Never ever. This is what Jesus is telling us. The salt that loses its saltiness cannot accomplish good in this world. You become like the world, you cannot win the world. And this fixes, you see how general that Jesus' teaching is here, but it has thousands of applications. You think about all the things that this fixes down the line about seeker sensitive approaches to the Christian message. Do you understand? The seeker sensitive approach says dial things down, grab common ground where we're just like you so that we can gain a hearing for the gospel. Do you see Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that in this passage that our effect in this world is directly related to the distinctiveness, the contrast between the light and the darkness. You lose the contrast, you lose the light. Can't win the world by becoming like the world. Our power to do good in the name of Jesus is wrapped up in our distinctiveness as a holy people in the midst of the world of darkness. And so we have a warning here from Christ about uh, losing this distinctiveness, being worldly, being corrupted With the system of this world, the practices of this world, and forfeiting our ability to influence this world. And in verse 14, actually it's verse 15, Jesus gives a similar warning, slightly different. In verse 13, he warns us about the dangers of worldliness as a follower of Christ. In verse 15, He warns us about the dangers of hiding ourselves in isolation from the world. And many times in church history this has happened. Where the people of light understand their duties are to retreat in every way from the kingdom of the world. And Jesus teaches us in verse 15 that this is like someone lighting a lamp. Jesus says, and then sticking it under a basket. That's the nonsensical of the light of the church retreating from this world. And so you could say it two ways. A disciple who is is like the world is not following Jesus. That's the first warning. And you could also say it in this way. But also, a disciple who is hiding from the world is not following Jesus. That's the pattern. In the world, but not of the world. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. That's where the salt is meant to be. That's where the light is meant to be. Jesus expects us to be in the world, and yet not of the world. And that's what he lays out for us in this commandment. In verse 16. He looks at his disciples and he says these words, let your light shine. Let your light shine. And you think about the fittingness of the order here. You're the light of the world precedes the commandment to let your light shine. And we've said this many times, that indicative statement, this is who you are in Jesus Christ, comes before that imperative commandment. Let your light shine. This is a commandment for Christians to be what you are. Let it shine. Get it out there. Let it shine before men. That's important that you get that order right. That you are the light of the world comes before let your light shine or you'll get trapped in this endless cycle of trying to live the Christian life without even being a Christian. Trying to keep the commandments of Jesus without even trusting in Jesus for righteousness and power. It's a hopeless thing. It's like a a janitor whose job every week is to vacuum a 100,000 square foot building. And all he does every day is rub the vacuum over the floor, over and over again. His job is to get it clean, get it clean. And after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of doing this, somebody looks at him and says, hey, I don't mean to be rude, but did you ever consider plugging the vacuum in All those times where you were dragging that vacuum over the floor. Have you ever considered that? And I want you to understand the futility of getting this backwards. That you can waste 20, 30, 40, 50 years of trying to live like a Christian without being a Christian. You have to get this right. The indicative before the imperative. You need the gospel. You need the saving work of Jesus Christ. Or you never have hope of obeying the Lord. But to his disciples, this text is clear. Verse 16 is clear. Jesus expects and commands that we are so distinct and different from this world that the commandment is to shine. That's a beautiful thing to even say. He could have said, do a thousand push ups. But the commandment is to shine. Let your light shine. You are light. Let it shine. This is, how he, this is how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's a Christian. That's what the Bible says is a Christian, is a shining light. That's not some, you know, special forces Christianity. That is a Christian, a shining light in the midst of a dark world. And one of the things that this commandment does in verse 16, when Jesus says, Let your light shine. Is it shows us how nonsensical private Christianity is. It's a nonsense phrase. It's like dry water or a wet desert. It's private Christianity. Do you understand that? Private Christianity. It's just me and Jesus. You ask somebody about their relationship with Christ, it's so private to me. I don't talk about this with anybody. It's just me and Jesus. Jesus says, Let your light shine. Private Christianity is a nonsensical term. Let your light shine. Your faith in Jesus Christ according to the teaching of Jesus. is to go public. It's to shine before others. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing. That you follow, obey, trust, submit to Jesus. Not in this private thing that nobody knows about, but publicly before the world. Let your light shine is the commandment of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Let your light shine, verse 16, before others. I think this includes everything that makes us distinctly and truly Christian. And I'll say it that way because I want you to understand there to be a broadness in this commandment. I think we're way too apt to read something very narrow into verse 16. I think it's extremely broad. Everything that the world sees in your life that, that makes you distinctly and truly Christian is in view. And Jesus is saying, get it out there and let it shine. Let your light shine. And I hope that, in, that broadness that's here encourages you encourages you let it shine in every way the light of Christ the light of salvation is to be public you say what do you mean what does this include? well let's back up just just a little bit in Matthew's gospel it certainly includes this Matthew 3 verse 8 when John when the, when John calls, people to respond to the message of the kingdom of God. He says this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. One of the things that's supposed to be displayed to go public in our life as followers of Jesus is the fruits of repentance. Get it out there. Let it shine. This is what a Christ follower looks like. Display it. All the ways that we turn from sin and follow Jesus Do you understand? That's what fruit means. Visible stuff. The fruits of repentance. Let it shine. It also includes what we dug into last week. All those beautiful descriptions of the character of followers of Jesus. Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. All the things that make you different than this world. Get them out there. Let them shine. Don't stick them under a basket. Display the work of Jesus in your life. The Beatitudes are certainly in view in this commandment. In verse 16. Let your light shine before Others. There's a broadness here. And even in the phrase good works that we see in verse 16, verse 16 tells us that as we do that, others will see what our good works, the text says. And there's even a broadness here. The narrowness that. I think many of us are guilty of in reading this passage is we see that phrase and we automatically think deeds of mercy before the world. Acts of compassion. That is what Jesus is calling for and commanding here. No doubt. That's part of it. No doubt. Even though in the same sermon that we're warned to be very careful of acts of charity that are done to be seen by others. But it's broader than this. Good works are broader than that. They're every work that you can do that's good. They're broader than this. They include works of mercy. They also include works of justice. But they also include things like honorable conduct and a godly lifestyle before this world. It's everything that sets you apart as a Christian. And one of the things that helps us see the broadness is the Apostle Peter takes this passage in the Sermon on the Mount and he unpacks it in his letter. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there really quick. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds. And give glory to God on the day of visitation. That passage sound familiar? See your good works and give glory to God. And I want you to notice that in this passage, the Apostle Peter links good works that are seen by others with honorable conduct among the Gentiles. And he links honorable conduct with abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Everything is in view. Everything that sets you apart as a follower of Christ. Jesus says, let it shine before others. And so don't get lost in making this too narrow. And you could even say it this way. If you are not abstaining from the passions of the flesh. If you're not doing that. You are not letting your light shine. You are not displaying holy character before this world. Those who are pure in heart. The ones who will see God. If you are not keeping your conduct honorable among the watching world. You are not. According to the Apostle Peter, letting your light shine. Let it shine. This is a call to holiness in every area of your life. A devotion to Jesus Christ. A devotion to serving Him. Going public. And so this commandment and its broadness encourages us to cast off everything that hinders us from serving Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that today. Cast off everything that slows you down. Get it out there. Let it shine. Go public. Display the fruits of the kingdom of God to this world. This world needs salt. This world needs light. Cast off indifference to the call of Christ, the commandment of Jesus. We ought to stir up zeal. Lord Jesus, I want to let light shine into this world. When this world looks into my life, I want there to be contact with Christ likeness, a confrontation with holiness. I don't want them to see somebody that's just like them. I want them to see somebody that's like you, Lord. Help us. Stirring up zeal to serve Jesus before this watching world. This is a command to go public, to go public. With holiness. With service to Christ. And so I want us to be exhorted by this commandment in verse 16. And I want to close by also calling us to be encouraged by the result that Jesus points us to in verse 16. Jesus tells us in verse 16 that others will look upon the shining light of our lives and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Praise God. This isn't, this isn't just a raw command, do this. And it would be fine if Jesus said it that way. But He said, do this. And this is the result. That people are going to see this and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. This is encouraging. That our lives before this world can have an effect. Now, we need to qualify this. Jesus is not teaching that everybody in this world will respond in this way. There's no way He's teaching that because this is one long sermon and He's already told us that the world is going to persecute us, speak evil of us, is going to hate us and reject us. This is not how Christians are to expect everybody to respond to their godly life. To their godly service to Jesus Christ. But praise God. We can trust God. This is how some are going to respond. They're going to watch our life. They're going to see the kingdom displayed in our life. And they're going to give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that others are going to give glory to God. When they are confronted with a display of real Christianity. This is one of the effects of real Christianity in this world. Now we need to say this carefully. In the same way we shouldn't expect everybody to respond this way. We need to be careful that we don't understand Jesus to be teaching in this passage that lost people are going to get saved by watching your life and how nice you are to your neighbor and how nice you are To the poor. Okay? We need to be really clear about this. That gospel fruit saves nobody. The gospel does, Jesus does. And so, Jesus is not teaching in this passage that the world's going to be saved by our deeds, by our godly deeds, as though they don't need to hear our gospel words. He's not teaching that in this passage. And we must never think that it's spiritual or virtuous to conceal the message of salvation. That the real spiritual stuff is just to live godly and shut our mouth. There's nothing spiritual about that. It's spiritual malpractice not to announce the gospel to the world of darkness. This world needs the message of salvation. And so certainly... Part of letting our light shine before others includes speaking gospel words, the saving message of Jesus Christ. Be just like Jesus, word and deed. This is what He's calling us to to announce the message of the kingdom and to undergird that message with a display of righteous character and good deeds. We cannot get this backwards. Because this world will not be saved apart from hearing the saving news of Jesus Christ. How can they believe if they never hear? This is what the Bible teaches. We must let our light shine. And this includes announcing the Gospel that Christ has died for our sins. That He was raised on the third day. That Jesus was ascended To the right hand of God. And right now he sits as king over all. As Lord of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth. Has been given to this crucified and resurrected Messiah. And from this place of authority at the right hand of God. King Jesus has promised to save sinners. In fact he's promised to save all. Every single person who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Him. He said He'll give them eternal life. He said He'll give them the Spirit of God. He said that He'll give them the righteousness of God as a free gift of the Gospel. This is the good news of the Kingdom of God and we must announce it. Let it shine. Get it out there. But this commandment in verse 16 reminds us that that message... It must be undergirded by godly lifestyle. Do you understand? Or the church is what? Or the church is hypocrites. And no different from the world. We announce the message of the kingdom with our lips. And we display the fruits of the kingdom of God in our life. Let your light shine before men. The greatest need this world has is more Christians. And I wish way more people talked like this when we, when we begin to think, what can Christians do to improve the society that they live in? The number one answer has to always be you know what? In all the good things that we could do, you know what we need more than anything else? More Christians! More salt! More light! Do you see? Everything else, it it pales in comparison to this. We need more salt and more light in this world of decay and darkness. This is why the number one priority given to the church from Jesus Christ as it relates to this world is what? Make disciples of all nations multiply salt and light to the ends of the earth. So whatever good effect that we're having as you know, a church of 200, Jesus says that effect can be multiplied. We need more. We need more Christians shining their light before men. It's always the number one strategy to do good to the societies that we live in. We must preach the Gospel. We must make disciples of Jesus Christ. So, careful qualifiers here. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to love us. It also doesn't mean that somebody's going to get saved just by looking at your life. But I I don't want us to miss this. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when He says that when they see your good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is teaching us, and this is the encouragement for Christians, that our life can so undergird the message of the Gospel, so um, undergird it, so supplement it, so display the truthfulness of it, that our life, And not just our words can confront this world. It can bring this world into confrontation and even crisis. A holy life confronts a world of darkness. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And in that confrontation, Jesus teaches us that they see something strange in a Christian, something foreign, something otherworldly. I've never seen anything like this before. That a Christian filled with the light of Jesus Christ shining into the world confronts unbelievers with this reality. Something more than human is reigning in that person right there. Something beyond what is possible with men. This is why Jesus says they don't give glory to us. Who do they give glory to? The Father who is in heaven. That they see the kingdom lifestyle lived out in this world and they conclude God is the author of that. God is the source of a life like that. This is beautiful encouragement from Jesus Christ. That we can trust God for this right here. That our life in Christ can be a call to worship somebody do you see that we do that every time we gather jake calls us to worship jesus is saying your life shining before this world can be a call to worship a confrontation to this lost world that god reigns and they give god glory and praise and this is our motive by the way for letting our light shine before others It's not so that we would get praised, so that we would be known. It's so that God would be praised. That His glory would be the ultimate aim in all of our service to Jesus. And so Jesus instructs us here that observing a Christian's life can cause someone to to worship the Christian's God. God. Now I want you to step step back from that for just a moment. And that truth that Jesus is laying out, it ought to encourage us and convict us at the same time. Because the truth is, every single follower of Christ right now, you can identify things in your life that don't call anybody to worship. But this is the standard. This is what He's laying out for us. This is what we can trust God for. That Jesus would produce in us the kind of character, the kind of service, and the kind of holiness that would be a confrontation, an otherworldly encounter in this dark and decaying world that we live in. May God help us to live a life like this. A holy life in the midst of a world of death. I'll close with this passage. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14-16. through 16. And it reminds us that we walk out of this place today as the aroma of Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen to it. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, the fragrance of life to life. And then the text says, brothers and sisters, who is sufficient... For these things Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world let's pray Lord we want to come to you now and we want to ask for your help God we want to ask for your help to live a holy godly life in this present age turning away from sin and pursuing virtue in every way Lord, we ask as your disciples all around the room, Lord, that you would awaken us to all of your commandments, all of your standards, all the things that you call us to. Lord, that we would not be those that you address. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I command you. Lord, help us to be doers of the word this morning and not hearers only. Lord, we ask that you would Use us greatly in this world. God, we feel it. And we want to feel it more, Lord. That we have nothing to offer You. We have no merit, Lord. We don't. We have no goodness apart from You. And we have no power. Lord, we pray. That You would pour the surpassing power. Of the knowledge of Christ. Into these weak. Jars of clay, and that you would have all the glory. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise God from whom all. my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And we all say, Amen. Amen.